Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, I hope you'll come see me at Emerald City Comic Con on Thursday, March 14th, as I discuss 50 years of Star Trek with some incredible stories, rare photography, and more. Join me as I boldly go. That's a bad pun. Tickets are available through the ECC website and at Read Pop. What's better than listening to the 430 movie? Seeing it recorded in front of a live audience. Join us this year at WonderCon, where your favorite 430 movie hosts will record Walt Disney Week live in Anaheim. We hope to see you there at WonderCon. If you're a fan of the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, then you'll love seeing your favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts live at WonderCon. Join us for a very special guest as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Star Trek V as we record a live episode of Inglorious Trexperts. You heard right, Star Trek V. We all hide a secret pain. See you there. Hello and welcome back to Best Movies Never Made. Uh, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. Hello. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, Steve and I uh, like to talk about movies, both interesting and infamous, that never made it to or through production. And today we have on a good friend of ours, fun guest, Mr. Neil Marshall. Hello. Um <laughs> If you're not familiar with Neil Marshall, he directed some excellent films such as Dog Soldiers, The Descent, Doomsday. Uh, he's worked, uh, I think, two of the coolest episodes of uh, Game you. of Thrones. Oh, absolutely. Worked on I thought they were pretty cool. Westworld. <laughs> you worked on Lost in Space. You worked on Black Sails. Hannibal. Hannibal. Timeless. Timeless. Uh, you've definitely become one of those go-to guys to do the pilots for TV shows. Yeah, I haven't done anything this year, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun doing those kind of things over the past few years. Absolutely. Um, and we are also in a movie watching group with Neil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> watching movies that, oddly enough, maybe shouldn't have gotten made sometimes, in, in but some, in some cases, absolutely, We're yeah. the best of the worst. Yeah. Except your Hunter from the Future, I, I, I would have loved to have seen more of those. <laughs> the <laughs> movie whose feet. title gives away its ending <laughs> twist. Um, but uh, I guess, Neil, just for people who aren't familiar with you, maybe talk a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of how you started out, what led up to Dog Soldiers, your first uh, feature. Right, the, the beginning. The, yeah. The, the birth. The birth. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, my, my uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a child of the 80s. My... my my uh, passion for for filmmaking came from seeing both seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time, but also seeing the making of Raiders on TV and great movie stunts. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of documentaries about making Raiders that seem to crop up out of nowhere. Um, and immediately, just I, I knew exactly what I wanted. I was 11 years old. I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life at that point. It was like I have to direct movies. Don't know how to direct movies, but that looks pretty good. Um, and yeah, I started making Super 8 films, you know, it's, it's the kind of, it's the cliche now. Yeah. <laughs> um, did the Super 8 route, the route, uh, an amazing way to learn filmmaking just by doing everything wrong, you know, and, and, and with Super 8 as well, because it's such a, a, a tangible, practical thing of shooting it, 
editing it, editing it, and you know, in some cases, like scratching on the film to create effects and things like that. So, um, anim- animating laser blasts by scratching using a mic- <laughs> like a magnifying glass and a needle directly onto the film, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to do now. But back then, it was like it was a great way to learn and you know, interesting process. So Actually, maybe you could answer something. I was just thinking about the other day, and if I wasn't doing a podcast right now, I would just Google it. But what is the difference between Eight millimeter and Super Eight. You know what? I don't know. Because <laughs> I thought I, I thought I sort of understood that maybe just regular eight millimeter you couldn't focus. But I think like it, it was kind of just like you had to be a certain distance. I don't know. Away. But it's also like some eight millimeters had had actual sound with it, so there oh, was yeah. room for a sound strip on it, which made the frame smaller. And Super Eight, I don't know. All I know is Super Eight was silent, and that was all we had access to. <laughs> That's not no. that super. Yeah. <laughs> and then so how did you kind of what was your first sort of steps into like an actual professional career? Well, I I I got into film school, uh, a local film school up in Newcastle and then off the back of that I landed some because uh, uh, I made as my graduation movie I made this uh 20-minute zombie horror comedy action thing. Um, is that online or anything that people can uh, check it's out? It's on. Um, it's on the Tales of Halloween Blu-ray. Okay. Um, uh, brain death. It's called. <laughs> it's, I was like, is it brain death? No, it's brain death. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was the. You know, before they were making comedy zombie movies, I made a comedy zombie movie, and it was great fun. It was just I did all the effects, I did all the gore, did the miniature models, and blew them up, and. Um, you know, produced and directed and wrote and did everything on it, including the editing. And when it was screened at our like final graduation screening, whatever, some guys from the industry, the local industry anyway, were there, saw it and offered me some editing work. And that basically led to me becoming an editor for the next like eight years, uh, freelance editor, just doing anything and everything that came along and learning the ropes that way. At the same time, I was writing because I've been writing scripts since I was about fifteen. And um, trying to write, eventually wrote Dog Soldiers and then started the process of trying to get that made. So, I mean, I graduated in 92. We didn't shoot Dog Soldiers until nine years later. So, you know, it was quite a long, a long journey to get there. But it meant that was my first foray into the industry. I made, uh, I was, I partook in a feature film um, in 95, a thing called Killing Time that I co-wrote and edited and did the action Choreography, choreography on it, and and a whole bunch of other storyboarded it, and all sorts of things like that. But didn't technically direct it. So, um, and then did Dying Soldiers, Soldiers? Did that lead directly into the Descent, or was there kind of anything in between? I was always writing scripts, and at, you know at that point, I think you know the script for Pendragon emerged around about that time as well. Because I'd written Dog Soldiers, and I wrote I, I think I wrote a, a number of scripts, um, one of which ended up being The Descent, and then we made The Descent, and then Doomsday and such like. But at the same time, I was always writing scripts on, on the sidelines with the, the view to making them down the line. Yeah. Well, like, should we just jump right into Pendragon then? or Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to bring up really quick, because I, I, I found a Rue Morgue article from like 2006, and it, it seems like the the version you gave us of Pendragon it seems a little bit different than than what you described back then, which was it's a, a medieval heist movie, which which is a post-Arthurian adventure, kind of like an unofficial sequel to Excalibur. But it's about a bunch of robbers trying to steal Excalibur from a tyrant in the Dark Ages. 
And um, was it called Pendragon then? That's all it says. Okay, because it, it was originally written under a different title of the Sword and the Fury. Sword. Ah, gotcha. I was going for something a bit more, you know, the pride and the passion, and you know, sort of yeah. a bit more epic. Um, but then the idea of a, a, a longer term, like the idea of a thread, a story thread, of the Pendragon lineage being part of the story and then potentially in sequels or whatever. So that's why I, I changed it to Pendragon. Oh, right and right. also thought the Sword and the Fury sounded kind of hokey. <laughs> well, and where did this... Um, I mean, King Arthur's pretty famous the world over, though I do imagine it maybe has a little more potency for people in the I UK. I, yeah, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a little like American it's one, tall I guess tales. It's one of, and... our, one of our great myths, yeah. our great legends. Um no, I, I wouldn't have thought. I, I don't think the script had changed that much from that description. Well, I did conceive I mean, of a, a heist medieval heist in the yeah, movie. movie, and there yeah. is a heist in the movie, but it's not the main <laughs> thrust of it, I suppose. Um, it comes from. It came absolutely from my love of the movie Excalibur, um, and watching that so many times as a kid, and growing up with that, and and and. As also, like you say, like being in the UK, you're surrounded by the Arthurian mythology. Yeah. And I, th- I I had this concept of like, I, I think I don't know, maybe I watched Excalibur at some point and realized that so many of the main characters are still alive at the end of the of the, the saga. You know, Arthur dies and it's kind of like, oh, well, that's the end of the story. But it's not because it's like there's Percival and, and Bedivere and, and Guinevere and stuff like that are still alive. And I was like, well... And then what happened? And it's like, well, what happened next? What happens to the country? Like, the, the, it was all about the king, the nature of being king. Mm-hmm. That's what's so wonderful about Booman's movie. It's like it's all about the, it's all about what being king means. The land and the king are one, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was like, so then, so what happens afterwards? Like, there isn't a king anymore. So, what does bedlam ensue? Is it chaos? Is who's going to be next in line? And you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, I've never seen, I've seen so many tellings of that story. What's the sequel? And can you tell it as like a standalone on the basis that everybody already knows the original story? Um, Which was fun when I was reading the script because like I, I didn't even know that like one sentence pitch there. So I was reading through and you open with the kind of like standard bit Ori- of narration, but it, but it keeps the f- going, which is what I was supposed to be yeah. like, oh, he's going to get all the way up through it's Oh, like, Arthur's dead well, now. <laughs> Arthur's dead <laughs> in, by page three, I think. Yeah. By page yeah. five, it's like, it's, it's just, it's, and originally that didn't, I didn't have that in there because I kind of I proceeded to write the script on the basis that everybody knew the King Arthur myth. Mm-hmm. But then what happened when I was writing the script and I researched the script and and the more research you do into the legend of King Arthur, the more confusing it gets because everybody tells a different story and there's so many different versions of the legend and it's not history. So it's 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 maybe based on history, but it's you know, it gets muddy. It gets more muddy the more research you do. So it was like, okay, I've got to just pick a version and stick to it. And the version I love is Excalibur, which is based on uh La Morte d'Arthur, um, by Mallory. And that's the version I stuck with. It was like, okay, I like the elements of this version. So I'll make this the continuation of that saga. Um and just a, and but then I thought, well, maybe not everybody does know that story, and I should set it up. I guess kind of Lord of the Rings style, you know, yeah, the opening of the Rings has a little kind of rundown of the story so far. I was like, okay, let's 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 bring Arthur in at the beginning, just so everybody knows what we're talking about. But then he's and you do a really quick version of events, and um, and this, and Arthur's dead by page three, and then then the story picks up proper, and that was that was the the conceit behind it. 
it, it's a great concept because I love Excalibur too. And, and then when I read the log line, I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. I've never seen anyone, you know, like it makes sense to do a sequel, especially the sword is still around, right? So, and so it's, it's, it's partly that. It's partly just why do yet another version of the same story? Why do another mm-hmm. version of, you know, the King Arthur legend, which has been told so many times? It's like, where can we take it in a different direction, bring in different characters? And it was all to do with, I wanted to, to turn a lot of the mythology on its head a little bit. And I like the idea that Excalibur in this particular, you know, in this time, in this world, Excalibur is the equivalent of a nuclear weapon. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> if you yeah, have Excalibur, great. you are unbeatable. You, you, you know, and that's what everybody wants to get their hands on. Yeah, because correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't get the impression in your world that, like, only Arthur could have had the sword. Anyone no, could have it's, had it's, it, right? It's, 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 I tell you, it's, it's the sword of power, and whoever gets their hands on it can use it. Mm-hmm. Only Arthur could draw it from the stone, but once it's once it's out, it's like anybody can get their hands on it, um, unless it goes back in a stone again, yeah. I suppose. And then you know, then only as air, the Pendragon air can use it. Um, so there was that concept, but it was also like, what other myths and legends can we turn on their head a little bit and like have Merlin is is a dog in this movie, <laughs> um, you know, Lancelot, who was like supposedly you know the greatest knight or whatever, he's kind of offhandedly mentioned as like he fell off a horse and broke his neck. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah, Lancelot. Yeah. Pff, Whatever, <laughs> uh, and I like and I like playing around with that that kind of mythology a little bit, yeah. And you also like brought in like something I never knew existed in in any of the stories, which was a you brought you bring up dragons as well mm-hmm. in the mythology, and I never knew that was a part of the mythology. So, well, it, it's not necessarily part of the mythology. I mean, Bowman kind of refers to uh, the dragon is is like. A mystical entity that's it's not an actual dragon it's like it's the breath of the dragon is is fire or you know the the life of the dragon is nature and, and it's like the dragon is like the equivalent of mother nature of some sort in Bowman's movie and I just thought well maybe in this movie we should make it more literal manifestation and so there's, there's mentioned that dragons were part of the mythology in the past and like they died out and then you know obviously at the end of the film it's like they conjure up this dragon again and it tortures everybody like the Ark of the Covenant, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's maybe walk the audience through the story just a little bit because I think it is a cool idea. It also reminded me, I assume you were a fan of the Sean Connery movie Robin and Marion. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which for people who haven't seen is a Robin Hood movie, but it's about decades after the normal period, the Errol Flynn period you see. Absolutely. It's about an older yeah. older version, you know, older characters and, and uh, talking about their lives and their regrets and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's a fascinating take on the legend. And I suppose I definitely put some of that in here because in essence, it's about a passing of the torch from mm-hmm. this, this the older generation who are the surviving Grail Knights who are uh, old men at this, this point um, to this new generation of the, the gang of thieves who become more noble throughout the, the the movies as the movie goes and this a, a more of an agent of enlightenment enlightenment which is less dependent on magic and wizards and all that kind of stuff and more about practicality and life and death and real things um and so it was it was about the the end of the dark ages i suppose and into more medieval times in the theory, I was trying to get a lot of stuff in there, yeah. a lot of ideas in there. <laughs> well, I mean, like, there's almost like a thread of horror movie in there too in the first half, where there's like the mysterious, like evil army of knights and the cloaked, like warrior who's Absolutely. just going around murdering all the old Grail knights. There's a bit of Conan the Barbarian, I think, yeah. in that for yeah. sure. Bit of Thulsa Doom. Um, 
think we, were, we even got dope smoking in there as well, I think, as in, in the script. When yeah. there's, there's some <laughs> mystical herb that they're smoking in a pipe and it's never quite mentioned. <laughs> well, it's a great scene because the two guys are getting to know each other. Yeah. You know? so, which, it seems like something you would do back then. Yeah, because so. our younger hero, hero is Wayfarer, who's like the leader of the thieves. Yeah. Um, and he gets captured by this like jerk lord and ends up getting freed by the lord's jester and they kind of go off and have like a buddy cop yeah sort of adventure and, and, yeah and, and the and the jester as a you know the the fool as the hero yeah. or one of the heroes was like a sort of interesting take on things so it was like had those characters teaming up and they go off on their own little kind of like story and at the same time the the, the villain's trying to get his hands on Excalibur and he's kind of systematically finding the old Grail knights who are still alive, Bedivere and um, Galahad, and all, and yeah, or Gal- Galahad's daughter, I think it is, um, who uh, are hiding out, and he's picking them off one by one, trying to find Excalibur, and then Galahad's daughter gets involved, and then eventually Wayfarer and her meet up, and eventually they meet up with uh, Percival, who's the last surviving of the knights at the uh, halfway point. And he takes them to see Guinevere, who's in a nunnery. And there's this whole, and for me, this was like the most one of the most poignant parts of it was like, you know, Percival was the guy who stood up and defended her honor when she was accused of having the affair with Lancelot. And of course, she, she was, was. She was. <laughs> yeah. And so Percival felt really kind of betrayed and, and was like, you know, disillusioned by the whole thing then. And he just went off and did his own thing. And he hasn't seen Mar- uh, Marion, Guinevere, uh, for. 30 40 years and then they have this this moment where they they make peace with each other and 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 i i, I was you know i was hoping that you know let's get the audience in tears at this moment yeah. if they feel the gravitas of that moment because there's all that prehistory uh that's established that you're bringing to that moment of these these two people who've had this huge history together they team up she gets the the thieves on side the gang of thieves on side who agree to go and basically steal this the sword back because by now, it's in the hands of the enemy, and they're going to uh, organize this heist to steal back the sword. And then what they have to do once they get it is they've got to take it to Camelot. Camelot by now is a ruin on a hillside. It's fallen into complete disarray. But one thing that's still there is the remains of the, you know, very covered in, you know, moss and fur and whatever it is, uh, the round table. And the point being is that that's the one place in the world where Excalibur loses all its power. Uh, because the, whole, the the point of the round table was that nobody sits at the head of it, that everybody is equal. Even Arthur was equal there. That that, that all any and all magical powers do not exist in that room. Um, so when the sword goes there, it loses its power, and therefore it's, it, they can destroy it. So they're going there to destroy it, and of course the army are chasing after them, trying to stop them, and it's kind of running battle, and they eventually get there, and they destroy it, and in turn they, the table splits in two, and just as all this army show up and then this dragon rises up out of the table and torches all the bad guys. <laughs> and then the, then the, then it's revealed. I, I, I can't remember if it's then exactly. I haven't read it in ages. Uh, then it's revealed that there is that there was, in fact, an heir to the Pendragon uh, you know, throne to, the, to, to Arthur. Arthur had a child and it is out in the world somewhere and nobody knows where it is and they set off on a quest to find the child. So, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty epic, and then it's also you got like castle raids and break and dungeon yeah, like, breakout. So it's like castles a, and jousts and, and yeah. I was gonna say it was <laughs> what's fun about it is it's very Robin and Marion, but whereas Robin and Marion was 
very 70s movie of that kind of attitude of like, oh, you've already had all your fun swashbuckling Robin Hood movies. Here's our like kind yeah. of old person contemplative. I, I, I don't know. I saw this as like a cross between Lord of the Rings and uh, Robin and Marion and Excalibur and, Ex- and Conan and... Yeah, because yeah, you, you get the Robin yeah, and Marion drama, yeah. but then you also have these, <laughs> yeah. you do have this big prolonged Ocean's Eleven style yeah. castle eyes, which is fun because all the younger people are pulling the heist while Percival's like basically in gladiatorial combat. As a distraction. As a yeah. distraction. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, again, going back to the horror movie scene that I really liked when, I, I can't remember, it's like Gwen or Galahad, it turns out, but you think he's just some priest, and there's all these dark riders coming into town, and he's like trying to push this big stone slab off the top of an altar, and when he finally gets it, <laughs> there's like all this armor and a sword in there, so you're kind of like, oh, who's this guy? And then he just gets killed. <laughs> Sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I put I, I I put a lot of I mean you know I obviously I wrote it quite a long time ago and I, I did many many drafts putting a lot of detail and and ideas into it you know there's like this super strong female characters and and Guinevere is really interesting and eventually like I think you know all the older characters end up kind of dying off I think mm-hmm. and it's like so it's very much the passing of the torch and um, you know off to, off to new adventures. Yeah, but I kind of like because you 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 always refer back to the sins of Lancelot and how it's just like just the times are dark it's like 30 years after arthur's death and and it's just it just seems like it's just been awful since the times of excalibur <laughs> in the land yeah, that's what i really dug about it, was, it, was, it it's a time was it a time of uh, mercenaries and thieves and uh, mercenaries uh, I, can't remember, I can't remember exactly what the quote is but it's yeah the, the whole concept is that after arthur's death everything went to shit that just anarchy reigned and out of this anarchy emerges this new person who wants to basically rule and do it by force. So and let's talk a little bit, I guess, about the journey of the film. So this was done around the same time you were writing The Descent. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I, I think I was. Yeah, I was, I'd written the, certainly the first draft of this between Dog Soldiers and The Descent. Yeah. How close did it ever get to getting made? Did it almost get made several times? Is it that kind of? No, it's actually never got anywhere near being made. Okay. And it's one of those things. It's like I, I kind of think of it not a greatest movie never made, but a great, great movie not yet made. Yeah. I, I haven't given up hope on it. Yeah. But the trouble is, like every time I, I go out and pitch it to people, they're like, "Oh, we've already got a King Arthur thing." <laughs> and then, of course, you know, yeah. uh, Jerry Bruckheimer's King Arthur thing came out, and it's like, oh, "This is the true story." Mm-hmm. And then that went its way, and then finally, you know, Guy Ritchie's King Arthur came out, and it's like every time. It's just re- the, when I feel the world is ready for this film, somebody makes a King Arthur Which is thing. too bad because <sighs> I guess uh, yeah. Joe Cornish's one is an example of something where they finally took a whole different angle. But yours, at least, it's like, well, it's not just a retelling of but, but, Arthur. Yeah, presenting a, 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 the, the what happened next yeah. idea was fresh, I thought. <laughs> oh, it, Plus, the, the Lady of the Lake scene you have, like... I saw like Excalibur when I was eight years old and the Lady in the Lake scene was something that's just been ingrained in my head ever since. And you have a version of it where the where the sword is coming out of the ice and you hear the sound crackling of the ice. And it's just a beautiful sequence in the script. And that, that's something I, I hope you can get it made one day. Cause just oh, that, I dream that, of getting it made one day. That, that alone. <laughs> to put, to put so the, the images I have in my head of what, you know, like what Camelot looks like now when it's all kind of falling apart and, and, and covered in ivy and things like that and the round table and you know Excalibur coming up out of the ice and things like that it's yeah epic stuff that I, you know I do want to put on screen one day do you remember when you first wrote it any casting ideas you had at the time 
Like, well, because I'd just done Dog parts? Soldiers, so I, I for, for, in my mind, it was like Sean Pertwee had to play Wayfarer, and that yeah. was that. Um, you know, I think I think it would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted Kevin McKidd for Reese, who was the kind of the, the bad guy, who's playing two sides. Yeah. Um, and Liam Cunningham for Percival. So I was like very much like these these guys I've just worked with they, they'd be great in these roles. <laughs> yeah. And uh for the most part they absolutely still would. So um yeah, I I beyond that I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you there's, had there's, there's a whole more bunch people of people in your mind for I think like there's a whole bunch of really cool roles. Oh, for Guinevere I would I would I would still kill to have Vanessa Redgrave play the part. Yeah. I just there, there'd be something about having her reprise the role of Guinevere. Obviously, in a different film. If it, if, if it couldn't be her, then maybe like uh, Cherry Lungi. Yeah. Straight out of Excalibur. <laughs> but I didn't necessarily want to make the ties to Excalibur that obvious. So I think, you know, Vanessa Redgrave would be amazing for Guinevere. Let's maybe go back to that Rue Morgue because there's another, like, essentially one sentence pitch in here that sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah, this one sounds awesome. This is called, you, you also mentioned in 2006, The Eagle's Nest, which is, you, you, you mentioned it as Die Hard Meets Remains of a Day. <laughs> it's kind of my, and it's my Raiders of the Lost Ark type movie. That's such yeah. a great well, that, that's, I mean, you know, when you when you asked me to send us the, the script, it was a toss up between Pendragon yeah. and Eagle's Nest. And Eagle's Nest actually, as uh, um, you know, touch wood, uh, is still alive and oh. Uh, may come alive next year, this year sometimes. So, which which would be amazing because yeah, Eagle's Nest is my uh, yeah, like you say, it was originally pitched Die Hard meets Remains of the Day because it was Die Hard in like an English country house, like you know, the classic Merchant Ivory. Movie. I was like, how can we take a classic Merchant Ivory concept and turn it into an action film? <laughs> I was like, what if you do Die Hard in a country house? And then it was like, well, okay, where does that? What's that story? What, what what's it about? It's not going to be about a butler who's like you know, John, the John McClane is the butler. Um, oh man! It, it but it it kind of deviated from that. And then I had this idea: I wanted to do a World War Two thing. I wanted to do a very much an Indiana Jones style boys own adventure movie and I was hugely inspired by things like Where Eagles Dare and The Eagle Has Landed so I thought well, I better get Eagle in the title somewhere um, and came up with Eagle's Nest and Was that a real was that the name of some Hitler Hitler's house in Austria or whatever it was, was called, called The Eagle's the Nest, Eagle's Nest okay. yeah uh, and this is because it, this is a castle in Scotland um, but it's, it's it's bookended by a true story and the true story is that um, Rudolf Hess, Hitler's third in command, I think it was, uh, for whatever reason, and it's still open to debate, um, at one point stole a plane, flew over the English Channel, parachuted into Scotland, where he was immediately captured and thrown in prison for the rest of his life. That was it. Like, And the, the story behind it is he was trying to reach uh, a castle in Scotland where this English um, lord lived, who was not necessarily sympathetic to the Nazi cause, but was sympathetic to the cause of peace and was against Churchill in the sense that Churchill was like, fight, fight, fight. And this guy was like, uh, no, let's maybe get a truce or something. And so this, so Hess was trying to contact him to try and organize potentially a truce with England. Um, in my story, Hess is carrying the, the plans to the secret weapon that can that is going to win Germany the war. Um, so he's still having his doubts about the whole thing, but he's trying to um, barter. He's trying to get a do a deal um, for the plans of the secret weapon. Um, at the same time, um, Churchill is suspicious of this English lord and has put one of his top spy soldier guys uh, uh, up in his castle pretending to be the gamekeeper. And so he's there 
the Nazis arrive, uh, a, a, a group of Nazis uh, parachute in to try and rescue, to try and grab Hess back. Everybody basically ends up in this castle on one night, and it's up to the gamekeeper stroke hero to do the John McClane thing, go around, pick mm. pick these Nazis off one by one by one, rescue the hostages, get Hess alive, get the plans for the secret weapon, and save the day. Oh, right on. So, <laughs> I hope that would happen. I do too. <laughs> Full of chases and, and elaborate fight sequences, and yeah, a lot of fun. Nice. Well, one thing, like... One thing I like that is gets, keeps getting highlighted on our podcast as we do more and more episodes is I cer- certainly know what it was like for me before I was in the industry and you look at people's IMDb's and you hear them talking in interviews and it basically just seems like people decide they're going to make a movie and they go make it. But, but when you're actually never in like the industry, that. it's like maybe one fifth of the things you yeah, try to I get Yeah, I mean, maybe made there's a handful made. of people who, you know, I'm sure Tarantino he decides yeah. to make a movie, goes and make it, makes it. But um, because I was going to say after, it seems the like part, the descent a... was probably when you started to get more industry heat. And I know going, Steve always digs up these great old articles and sends them to yeah. me, <laughs> and you can tell that there was like this period where they were constantly announcing things that either you were writing or you were yeah. attached to. But it is. It's uh, you know, these things are are you know they're they're a struggle, and you've got to you know work at them for a long time to get off the ground. But you know, I I heard recently the favorite, you know, up for Oscars and just mm-hmm. like this this weekend, and um, that that was like seven eight years in the making or something like that. That it was written a long time ago, and they've been trying to get off the ground. Um, they, you, I think a lot of projects have that yeah you know, life to them. Yeah, I just heard about that with Happy Death Day, that it was like a Platinum Dunes movie 10 years before it came out. There you also. go, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it is kind of a trip. <laughs> yeah, a film came out recently called Hellfest that I was attached to direct like five, six, seven years ago, something like that, and we could do something totally different, and then, you know, it disappeared, and then suddenly it shows up on iTunes. It's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these, these, these films have a weird life before they, they're, they're born. They're hi, they hibernate or... Um, I don't know what the word is for that, but uh, yeah, you just need to get them out there on variety or something. It seems like, or or yeah, thing. We're Gloria trying to get or... attention for things, whatever, or just timing. It's like you know, let's say I've got a King Arthur project or a World War Two project, and every time you take it in, it's like, ah, oh, we're already doing a World War Two project, so we don't want to do two. And then you know, the ch- the chances of catching them at that moment where that one day when you go in the door and they go, I was just looking yeah. for that project. <laughs> And here it is. But what always makes me mad not, is when that yeah. happens and you remember that like five years later and you're like, wait, they didn't even make that other one. <laughs> <laughs> they could have made mine. Yeah, I think what was it? My favorite was Albert Pune got Sword and the Sorcerer greenlit because Excalibur just came out that weekend. Right. <laughs> and then and, and, like, yeah, it just could be as simple as that. Yeah. Um, and then meanwhile, Larry Cohen sold phone booth and cellular simultaneously, which was right. clearly he had... An idea that could go in one or two directions, and normally, like people like us would be like, "Well, I yeah. guess I'll pick one and write that." I, mean, and I kind of Cohen. feel like, like I was—I was born, <laughs> I was born a little bit too late. That if I'd been pitching these two scripts around during the eighties, that they would have got made. Yeah. Um, so. It's more well. cocaine around then. Well, well, fingers still crossed. They're still like you know, they're timeless projects. So. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, absolutely. Both of them are timeless, so they're not not specific to now. And I and, and I've not given up hope on either of them because they're they're good scripts. Oh, absolutely, the the King Arthur, from what I, it, it's brilliant. I love it. You know, I, I I can't wait to see it when it does get made. And was um just like looking through some of the stuff Steve dug up, you were 
going to do, I think it was the Sherlock movie that became the Robert Downey Jr. movie. Yeah. Was it any different when you were working on it? Um, it was a bit different. I mean, it it was in its early stages. Yeah. And, um, um, I mean, I, I couldn't commit to it because I was in the midst of Doomsday at the time. Um, but I, I did manage to get my best friend, my oldest friend, who I first saw Raiders with when we were 11 years old, uh, uh, the job of writing it. And he ended up writing it no, uh, and, cool. and writing the, the Don Jr. one. So I guess it evolved <laughs> into that. But it was, it was, um, yeah, it was it was just a, a a treatment at that stage. It wasn't a script, so that's why we were trying to get the script up and running. Oh, right on. And was that um, because it sounds like in this the Variety article, it's kind of being pitched. I mean, gritty is such a generic word that gets overused now. But the guy Richie one ended up being very guy Richie, you know. Yeah. Big was yours going to be more grounded or? I think inevitably, I, I don't share the same style as Guy Ritchie, so yeah. I, it would have it would have been a very different kind of film. Um, I my sensibilities would have taken it in a in a darker, grittier, grungier, probably more direction. So, um, yeah, it would have been a very different film. I think even with the same, you know, it's like if you give the same script to a number of different directors, they're going to turn in different movies. So yeah, um, yeah. I know another thing you were attached to, which is an idea I just always found fascinating the second i heard about it was the voyage of the demeter yeah which for people who don't know in bram stoker's dracula his coffin is put on this boat and then brought to england and when it arrives at england it basically just sort of like crashes into, into the, the beach yeah. and everyone it on the boat is dead it washes ashore sort of thing um yeah that was again another fascinating project and i i, I worked on that for some time uh, did a number of rewrites on the script and and had a lot of fun with that. That that could have been very very cool. This, the setting of a of a, of the old sailing ship, um, wet and creaking and whatever was like perfect for for some real horror. And then just trying to come up with a logical reason why, with everybody being killed off, whatever you know, they kept going and they magically they still end up in exactly the place that they were <laughs> yeah. meant to, to to be. So it's it's like well, how do how do you how do you steer the story in that direction? Because it's like you know how it, you know how it ends. It's just how do you get there? And what was kind of the you know to go into detail? What was kind of the story going on in the boat? Because I imagine you have all these subplots that all end the same way with everybody being dead, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's been such a long time since I looked at it. I can't remember. I do. Know, I mean, obviously, it became like a sort of alien on board the ship yeah. of. Um, we we never referred to him as Dracula in the script. We always referred to him as the Nosferatu, um, just because it just never felt like a Dracula script or or, or a Dracula type movie. And simply by association, Dracula brings connotations, um, which because I you know he wasn't going to be a guy in a cape, you know, um, with fangs. I wanted to go for something way more twisted and more Nosferatu-like or more like the master in, in Salem's Lot. It's like mm-hmm. that kind of vampire nice. was more interesting to me. Um, so, and, and and I had a lot of fun doing some kind of crazy transformation stuff. So there's a, there's a lot of like thing, like transformations because oh, interesting. With, the, with, with, you know, with Dracula that he can turn into the wolf and turn into the bat and turn into the mist and all this kind of stuff. It was like, okay, so how can we do that? But like, in a, in a thing kind of way and oh, do man. just really, really twisted stuff. So, I mean, oh. I think my favorite moment was uh, at one point one of the crew members is up on deck and he's confronted by this wolf, this giant wolf. 
and the wolf just stares at him and it opens its mouth really wide and he can see into the wolf's throat and inside the wolf's throat is this face there's a human <laughs> face these black eyes and stuff staring at him and suddenly the face like comes up out of the throat and the wolf turns inside out and becomes this vampire thing that attacks him but I just had this, this kind of face hiding inside the throat of a wolf oh, was really creepy oh, dude that Sounds kills awesome. me <laughs> it's on a boat there's nowhere to go yeah. this is just it's like a great the, it's a really oh. good setting for that kind of thing the thing did, did you boat. end up cheating does anyone get away from the boat that we just never knew about in I think this Dracula uh, I think somebody survives yeah, somebody escaped on a life raft before it crashed or something, yeah. and then they they survived. I think I can't. It's been such a while. So I was wondering because I don't know why. It's always the example I go to. I always think of in Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. There's that house full of all these characters, like Crispin Glover and these people, and they have this like intricate network of like social dynamics and subplots, and then every single one of them dies, <laughs> and there's no resolution to any of it. I mean, it created, it create, you know, it presented us some like interesting kind of conundrums of like, you know, according to to uh, Bram Stoker, it's like the ship's captain is tied to the wheel and he's dead when it crashes. And it's like, well, okay, so did he tie himself to the wheel? And how did he, how do you do that? Uh, did somebody else tie him to the wheel? And is he is he's dead from loss of blood or you know like, and and if he's tied to the wheel, how does it still end up crashing on the shore or do, you know what? What was the point of tying yourself to the wheel? That's just like that was the question. Do you remember what your solution was? Uh, no, not the time. Yeah, you, you surprised me with that script. I was like, okay, I'm all prepared to talk about Pendragon, and yeah. now he's talking <laughs> last words of the demeanor. Then, um, well, there was another. Um, you had a what was it called? Sacrilege. Do you remember that one at all? Which sacrilege was, a, was uh, it's an old west actually, horror movie. Yeah, right? that was. It was. A, it was a. I basically picked up on the notion and I like taking the, like, these pre-established things and then saying what happened next yeah this was the what happened next with Jack the Ripper story oh. um, that obviously it's an open-ended mystery you know, you're never caught blah 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 um, and there is one myth or, 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 or theory that he went to the States mm-hmm. and there was, a, there was a murder or something in New York I think it was shortly afterwards that kind of matched his um, M.O. And uh, so I thought, well, okay, so if he went to the States, what happened next? What if he headed west? And what if he ended up in a gold mining town in the Rockies? And, you know, it's full of prostitutes. It's kind of just like another version of his old Whitechapel East End, kind of, you know, that was kind of bawdy and rough and all that kind of stuff. It's a similar kind of thing. And would he feel right at home there? And then what would happen is like when people start dying. And it was this notion of like the, the, the sheriff, the classic Western sheriff, instead of, you know, something I've never seen in any Western is the sheriff actually having to do some police work. <laughs> 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 and, and the sheriff actually, you know, det- being a detective and, and trying to do some police work and track down the killer in this Western town while all these girls keep on getting slaughtered and various things are happening. So, yeah, it was... Jack the Ripper in the Old West. Dude, that's a great concept. Oh, man. And, uh, yeah, we, we we ended up turning it into a TV series called American Ripper and wrote a pilot for it, and sadly, it didn't get picked up. So, oh, you know, man. what can you do? Is that something you still control, though? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's sure. always the sadness with some of this stuff. Is well, it nobody made, picked it up, so I, I guess, so I guess it's, you still it's controlled do. by somebody. I wasn't sure yeah. if it was with a production company who maybe it's had probably, it. Or... To be honest, it's probably controlled by the writers because I didn't, I didn't write the pilot okay. myself. So, um, but it was, it was a great script, you know, great potential for a TV series. But you know, that's how it goes. Yeah. 
And did you, I'm sure you remember, were, did you have like a whole Dog Soldiers trilogy that you kind of mapped I out? Did, or, is, yeah. or is that one of those just like internet? No, rumors? it was, um, that, you know, when I was making Dog Soldiers, I was, I had a, the idea was a trilogy that was going to be, I think it was like he was fighting werewolves in the first one, then Cooper would survive and he would go on to fight. And I thought it could have, it could have been vampires or zombies in the second one. And then the third Different one, it was kind of be like a sort of weird Frankenstein's monster, monster yeah. kind of vibe to it of like genetic cloning and stuff like that, that he was going to end up getting involved with. So it was like, it was trying to do, a, instead of just doing the same genre for each movie, it was yeah. like trying to try do a different horror genre within that. Yeah. The whole franchise and by part 80s fighting mummies. Yeah. I, st- I still, this still holds hopes yeah. of doing something, a Dog Soldiers 2 or something like that one day, maybe. But I don't think it'll be that. I don't, it'll be something else. Yeah. <laughs> And am I remembering correctly that were you was the Conan thing you were working on like was that ever did you get a, a script phase of that or was that kind of just a, a oh for the the legend of Conan. yeah uh, yeah we had a script um, and you know we were, we were really kind of all set to get into working on the script with uh, with Arnold involved and we got to the stage of like I was lucky enough to have a conversation with him about it. And he was very excited, and and I was gonna like basically trying to turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, you know, de- dealing with, you know, accepting of the idea that the character was old, and going with that, and um, in the same way that Unforgiven just went with, the, with, you know, he had his time, and he's kind of a little bit of a relic from that time, but still as ruthless and dangerous and lethal as ever. And that's what Conan would be when, you know, when put on the spot. And it was a really fascinating concept. And uh, sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away wow. overnight. That's oh, the worst man. reason for something just like not one to day you're doing it, the next minute it's like, oh, the rights went away. It's like, we can't do it anymore. Was this before or after the, the more recent Conan movie they did with uh, Momoa? It was after. After. Oh, what? It was after, yeah. wow. Because I also pitched for that Conan movie, but didn't do that one either. It's funny because I would have thought Conan was in public domain, but uh, I don't think so. I think the state now. Because I know I, don't I think have, it's as easy as that. Yeah, <laughs> Cause I have John Melius's draft for Conan the uh, the King, or is it Conan the Conqueror? Is what the version or I have is King called Conan. King Conan. King Conan. Yeah, I have one of those. Crown of Chains or something. Was it one it of them? might be that one. I have. One of those drafts, and I mean, the fact they couldn't even get that one off the ground, it's sad that we couldn't get another Schwarzenegger Conan, yeah. especially yours, the way it sounds. Like, Well, I'd, I'd, yeah, I mean, I would love to have done it, absolutely. I would still, at the same time, I would love to see Milius do one. Yeah, <laughs> well, I was very, I mean, because obviously they did make a sequel to his Conan, but just the end of the original movie of him looking just so bored on his throne, <laughs> it's just begging I also, to follow up on that. I also heard that originally Conan the Destroyer, there was an R-rated cut, and it was just lost back in the 80s because they released the PG-13. I always wondered if that was true. It's like the- th- That interests me. Yeah, because it's like the Eaters of the Dead cut I always yeah. wanted to see the, you know, the one that screened for test audiences and they hated it and they chopped like forty minutes out and rescored it. Would love to see that. As yeah, well. me too. <laughs> you know, it's like retitled it what the thirteenth warrior. warrior. Yeah, because yeah. it was you know one of those preview audiences destroyed it. But I'm curious about that Conan the Destroyer version out there. I mean, I wonder if it does exist. You know, was, who knows? Do you still have the script for your Conan movie? I don't know. Mm. I, I had I, it wasn't it was. Uh, I was going to rewrite it. It wasn't my script. So yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. 
but I, I don't know. Tragic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. These things are tragic. They know. Yeah. And, the, you know, the, all the, the movies... Well, um, some of the movies you've been talking about on the podcast already is there's like, okay, maybe they were best left yeah. that way. But <laughs> yeah. in some cases, it's like, oh, wow, you know, that would have been that would have been fantastic. Yeah, to work with Schwarzenegger. Yeah. yeah. What was like... What was kind of his arc in that? Was it basically just like Unforgiven where he felt old and useless and then kind of got his groove back i would imagine pretty much yeah but it was you know I, I i just i don't know it's just me inherently i just want to go for these like dark tones yeah but in a way more in keeping with with melissa's conan mm-hmm. you know, it was it was meant to be like as if none of the other ones had happened and we were just picking up you know where that film left off and where did that character go that, that to me was interesting. I do like this episode has highlighted your love of like <laughs> doing sequels. To, to I just, yeah, other well, things. yeah, and and you know I haven't really done any. I mean, you know, yeah. just, I wasn't really involved with Descent too, but I've sort of done gone down that route. But no, it's it's not so much sequels as as what happened next. Oh, as yeah, in, like take the established myth and okay, we've seen that, done that a million times. What what's next? You know, that's why Robin and Marion is so fascinating because it is that that is the what happened after the myth we already mm-hmm. know. You know, mm. so also a fan of the Jack the Ripper. What happened next? Of time after time, where the answer was he time traveled to the eighties <laughs> and Mary Steenburgen was involved. Well, I, I stumbled. Um, were were you attached also to a Troll Hunter remake? I was. Yeah. Uh, for quite some time, and we 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 got quite down the line on that one. We designed trolls and all sorts for that. We thought it was going to be a lot of fun, and that was the notion of doing um, not only an American. Well, it was was it American? I mean, yes, it was American sort of, but it was still going to go back to Norway. Oh, um, nice. But it was American characters going back to Norway and finding the troll hunter and stuff, and and, and um, but to do it as a as a full on drama rather than the uh the, the the docu you know kind of found footage that the original was um to play it as a more straight story so that was like yeah again <laughs> lots of potential yeah, yeah. but the right again the rights expired on that we'd been working for some time and <laughs> they, were, they, they they didn't want to renew the Guys, rights on it come on <sighs> someone's got to be paying attention to that i know we had some really cool trial designs and everything it was gonna be fun and when something like that, when the rights lapse, is it just then that the rights owners have kind of been waiting to do something else with it, or did you have any sense of it why was the they couldn't original, just re-up? It was the original director. I think it was the original producer, and the rights came up for renewal, and he said, "We don't want you to have them anymore because we're going to do an actual sequel to the the movie." And um, as it turned out, that never happened. But mm-hmm. it was uh, he didn't. He thought that our version might affect them doing their version so he kept on the rights to do the sequel or something something like that yeah and that's what I was told it's a little bit vague but you know. I'm curious at any one given moment in time how many different irons in the fire do you feel you have as far uh, as projects never stop spinning yeah. plates always um, I mean even now I've got like five or six on the go just in various stages sometimes it's just discussions sometimes it's like hopefully getting close to production you know and everything in between um yeah constantly and and also my 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 mind doesn't allow me to stop thinking of ideas if they if they come into my head so i was jotting down concepts and things yeah 
I've had people ask me like when they'll know I had some project I was working on that didn't happen, and they'll be like, "Oh man, aren't you just like devastated?" And I'm like, "I mean, I guess you kind of can't think about it that way." Yeah. Do you have words of like, wisdom I, for creative people out there of how to just keep rolling with the punches? Well, I think it's, it's the same advice for anybody involved in the industry. Whatever, all you can do is just like knuckle down and be stubborn and and resilient and be thick skinned and somehow get through it. Yeah. Yeah. Now that the, the, I don't know what other advice I can offer. <laughs> um, it's got to be a shark moving forward. <laughs> yeah, always keep moving forward. Yeah, um, swim and eat and make little sharks. <laughs> I think that's good life advice. Yeah. Well, Neil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank, thank you. Yeah, it's great you. having you on. Uh, and thanks to you guys for joining us for Best Movies Never Made. And if you're a fan of the podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like the 430 Movie every Friday in which a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies and Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life. Available every Saturday wherever you listen to podcasts and Disco Nights, the podcast about all things Star Trek Discovery with host Chase Masterson every Monday. Um, and if you enjoyed us, why don't you uh, subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, rate us five stars. You might also want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram uh, because we like to post concept art from the movies and pages from the script and other fun stuff like that. You can find us at Never Made Film on Twitter and just Best Movies Never Made on Instagram. Uh, I also want to give a special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surgeon Network, including our producers Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. So until next time, this is Stephen Scarlatta. And I'm Josh Miller saying we won't see you at the movies. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.